This is the Feast of Christ the King. Roman Catholics call this Sunday Christ the King. The Lutherans, I think, now do, and most Episcopalians do, although in typical Episcopalian fashion, this is also the last Sunday of the Christian year, the last Sunday after Pentecost. And in parenthesis underneath, it says Christ the King. But the readings and the prayer that Father Emerson prayed to begin the Mass, uh, the collect, the opening collect, is a paraphrase of the collect in the Roman Missal. So, you know, that's how we sort of do those things. And <laughs> this feast is not ancient. It was promulgated by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And it originally was celebrated on, in, on the last Sunday in October, just before All Saints Day. So the idea was to think about the reign of Christ. Pope Pius XI said, the celebration of the all-embracing authority of Christ who shall lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. And as a setup spiritually and theologically and thematically then for All Saints Day, where you and I think now about being part of the reign of Christ and how we move towards sanctity and how that makes itself real in the world uh, on an everyday daily basis when we deal with the ordinary and commonplace challenges and opportunities. In 1970, Paul VI, the Pope then, moved the feast to the last Sunday of the year as a way of preparing us now thinking about the coming of Christ in Advent and as a setup about uh, the coming of Christ is to begin to bring the reign of Christ present to the world in some way. I want to say a little bit today about kings, not too much. I want to say some things to you about what I think this uh, feast is about. And then I want to say some things about the gospel from John where Jesus is brought in front of Pilate. And two big, big questions are raised, you know, what does this world mean? What does in the world mean? And what is truth? And how did John understand, and the community that wrote that gospel, how do they understand what truth means? You know? G.K. Chesterton, one of the great writers on, this, on uh, religious topics, he also wrote the Father Brown Mysteries in the early part of the 20th century. He, he, uh, he said, all of us ought to be engaged uh, in certainly seeking the truth. We can't know it perfectly, but we ought to be engaged in seeking it. And sometimes a lot of people uh, don't even think we ought to bother, or they believe it's all relative, which is another issue I'm not going to get into today. <laughs> Kings aren't uh, an easy sell in, in this country, are they? monarchy. There are fans of the English monarchy. Public radio, public television is full of stories. Now it's fashionable. We have a lot of inside baseball on the royal family, don't we? There's one coming next week, I think, about how there was tension 
between Queen Elizabeth and her mother, <laughs> who was going to have to now take a back seat because she was going to be the queen. So that, that excites a certain number of, of people. <laughs> you know. So they can prepare themselves a big G and T and sit down in front of the TV and look, right? So by and large, though, the whole idea of why we got here and stuff was uh, we kings were not high on the list. So the language of the kingship of Christ is something that is tough for us to appropriate, particularly in uh, the postmodern period and in the first few years of the 21st century. But it's in the biblical language. So maybe we need to think more about the reign of Christ as something that's important. What is authoritative in your life and how we understand what the church believes and teaches about that reality and about the kingship of Christ? A few years ago, one of the discontented bishops in the Episcopal Church, I guess he's not in the Episcopal Church anymore. He's poodled <laughs> off into some new thing. He gave a speech, and he said, You know, the Episcopal Church today is all about affirmation. We on the other hand, are all about transformation. So I listened to that. And I think I actually know what he means because there is kind of an overweening worry in the culture generally about low self-esteem you know, the whole idea of affirmation is something that we need to be concerned about in that direction, but sometimes it can cloy. And yet at the same time, I think to myself, you hear me say to you all the time, the affirmative message that we have at St. Luke's Church and in the Episcopal Church, I believe, that is trying to be faithful that God unconditionally accepts, loves, and forgives us, and that is the default position that we begin from in all our interaction and in all of our community life. And I cannot imagine how that affirmative message is not transformative. How is it not? If you have the feeling and the knowledge that you were unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven, a, a, a child of God. You know, as a pastor, I've seen people who, if they rehearsed to you the story of their life, it would make your hair stand on end. And they're here. And somehow that message of affirmation has permitted them now to change themselves and to understand what it means to be a new person in Christ without using any of the religious vocabulary that so often characterizes that kind of talk, right? Affirmation produces conversion, you know? 
It produces right relationship. It produces health in relationship. This guy I talk about all the time, Edwin Friedman, said, focusing on pathology breeds dependency. Focusing on strength breeds intimacy. So let's not hear all the stories about how hellacious it's been. Let's hear the stories about how you have been able to move through it and survive. How is it you're still standing up? Isn't that a transformative message? If you've learned even a little bit about your coping skills, if you've learned, uh, even learned a little bit about what it means to be a decent human being, if you've begun to understand that the message of the gospel is true, that you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways, and in ways that you perhaps would think too trivial to be even worth discussing. And yet the redemptive work of God is present in all of that as we live on a daily basis. God's presence. That's what all the books are about, like Brother Lawrence, the little pamphlet, The Practice of the Presence of God. St. Teresa of Avila, if you find yourself in the kitchen among the pots and the pans, then I guess you need to find God in the midst of the pots and the pans. That's a transformative message to me. It's about transformation as well as affirmation. It is very important. You know, the message of the church about salvation for many centuries, probably since about 500, not everywhere, has been almost entirely negative. The church has spoke, spoken about, or mo uh, many uh, of the ones who we still read and identify, as salvation from. Salvation from sin, sickness, and death. Salvation from yourself. Salvation from all of the pernicious forces uh, that operate within the human person. Salvation from your personal demons. And while much of that may be true, the message of the early church was that we are saved to newness of life, the possibility for transformation, the affirmation of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, and the empowerment that we receive from that to be able to be people who make it easier for us to have a society where we can be good. And the kingdom of God then becomes something that isn't somewhere else, some cloud cuckoo land that all of us must go to in order to experience it or wait for the day when it comes to us and eradicates what's ever here. A Star Trek moment where there's a divine ethnic cleansing and things then move forward. <laughs> right? Which is what a lot of that talk seems like to me, doesn't it? Now that's a setup for moving into the whole issue of the gospel and what this all means because Jesus is brought before Pilate and he is questioned. 
And he says, are you a king? I love it, the, in, in, in the New Revised Standard Version, Jesus said, where did you get this? <laughs> right? You say that I'm a king. You haven't heard that from me, right? And there's been a very important breakthrough in this translation because the, uh, some of the other translations in the older translation uh, say, my kingdom is not of this world. In the Art and New Revised Standard Version, it translates the Greek better, my kingdom is not from this world. And there is a difference. Because what Jesus is talking about is that the kingdom of God is not from somewhere else. It comes from God, but it's going to be here in history. And you and I are going to be part of that process, the reign of God, that we're not thinking about going somewhere else, you know, or worrying about when we do, it'll be okay. In my bathroom at home, I have on a bulletin board a New Yorker cartoon where I guess it's St. Peter, but it's some heavenly minion standing at a podium just like this, and he's looking down, and there's a guy standing in front of the podium like this, and he's looking here, and he goes, no, that's not a sin either. <laughs> Gee, uh, you must have worried yourself to death. <laughs> right? Some of us do. You know, in the old-fashioned talking about the spiritual life, when you do a self-examination for confession, for example, one of the sins that, you, that, that is a part of the sin is something called scrupulosity. <laughs> Overly attentive to this. Too much, you know? And this guy is Mr. Scrupulosity with a capital S in the cartoon, you know? Now, you know, my own view is I think about myself in this and I think about a lot of, you know, people and I, we could do with a little bit more scrupulosity in this day and age, don't you think? <laughs> it might help us <laughs> to be a little bit more attentive to uh, what in the world is going on or to be more realistic. I have a lot of hair-raising pious manuals in my office. I've collected them over the years, and I've been given them by parishioners that I've served over the years. And some of them, you know, are examines for the clergy. And uh, there's one from England, G.A.C. Watton's The Priest's Handbook, one of them like that. I can't remember what it is. But in the examination, one of the questions is, have I been spending too much time in my rose garden? <laughs> Boy, when I used to read that stuff years ago before I went to seminary, I thought, I, this is, I want to sign up and be part of this game. <laughs> right? That's it for me. Right? Jeez. You know, what a rude awakening. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. <laughs> Golly. So the reign of God is something that's here, and we're all part of it. And Jesus, in his way, is at pains to say that to Pilate. And what his 
teaching, his words and his work, certainly for the Johannine community that wrote this gospel, what they believed is that this is what they learned from him. They realized that they now are part of this process, and the Savior even told them that they will do even greater works than he has done, and they need to understand the reign of God as something that they're part of and help bring to be, or at least are engaged in the process of shifting the whole of the creation off dead center and in a more godly direction. It is part of the mystery of God that God apparently needs us God not only loves us, forgives us, and accepts us unconditionally, he needs us to be. It's hard to understand that for me sometimes, but that apparently is so. So all that we have to offer uh, is part of this divine purpose. In the course of this interview with Pilate, Jesus uh, is asked by Pilate, what is truth? And he doesn't answer him. But if you were to ask a biblical scholar what it, the, the, the author of John's gospel and the community out of which it emerged understood by truth, they would say truth is the reality of God seen in his revelatory and redemptive action. And that means not just the dramatic things that we read about in the biblical account but God's revelatory and redemptive action is what occurs often in the commonplaces of our daily lives, you know. I read in the recovery movement, they say, uh, you know, um, uh, a coincidence is when God works a miracle and chooses to remain anonymous. <laughs> well, it can sound corny, can't it? but it, it's true. And so that's what the truth may mean, God's revelatory and redemptive action. Most of the time, most of us see this uh, in hindsight. My godmother always said the famous cliche, you know, hindsight's always 20-20, that's true. But oftentimes you can look back and see, well, you know, here's what I was like before, here's how I understood this before. This experience, this practical wisdom that I have gained is the accumulated response to adversity has led me in some way to understand the truth in some better way. Maybe truth with a small t and not a capital T. I don't know if we ever get there. But certainly, Pilate maybe was asking Jesus this question because he really wanted to know, you know. And you and I get that answer from our own experience. Remember, Episcopalians believe there are three places that we look for what is authoritative in our lives. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. So it's very important. Some people would criticize me for putting experience there where reason is and would tell you that uh, the Elizabethan divines understood reason differently, and that's not true. The Elizabethan divines assumed that experience was part of what they meant when they said reason. After all, you've got a reason about something you've experienced, right? Or, or are others have, 
Isn't that what you do? The process of reasoning? So Richard Hooker would have, would have said that. I learned it actually, just so you know, in high school in a, in a literature class that Mr. Price took, we had to read a book called The Elizabethan World Picture by E.M. Tilliard. I never forgot it because it's all about the great chain of being and it's about all of the things that uh, people thought then about what reality was. So when Richard Hooker said scripture, tradition, and reason, it was the accumulative aspect of the way human beings thought about reality and how they experienced it. So it's important for you to honor your experience in some way, and maybe by doing that you'll get some insights uh, into what it means to know the truth, and maybe the truth has some uh, liberating power. You and I become part of the reign of Christ through the sacramental system of the church, through our baptism in the tradition that I come from. And that means that as you continue, this is the process that you live into. And the Feast of Christ the King is about how you understand yourself to be a participant uh, in the reign of Christ. And remember what I say practically every week that I preach, and that is that we are not talking about the acquisition of an abstruse religious vocabulary in order to accomplish this in our relationships. It's good to learn some of this vocabulary, and when people who know it want to talk about it, you can use it. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of the time you're going to make a difference. You're going to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love by virtue of reflecting back to others the best of what it means to be a human being made in God's image. So this week, um, work on it. <laughs> Amen.